everybody. Welcome to the Scripture Chronicles podcast. This is the podcast where we explore the unified story of the Bible. I'm Dylan, your host, and joining me is my fellow co-host, one of the Musketeers, Corey Howitt. Corey, how are you doing? Doing good. Yeah, I'm looking like a Musketeer right now. I kind of messed up shaving today, took too much off the sides, and now I'm just a goatee Musketeer and stoked. A good thing that this podcast is audio only because if this was video and the ladies were seeing you, they'd be swooning and not paying attention to anything that we were saying. So um, anyway, guys, it is good to be back here giving the podcast today with Corey. Uh, We are going to be going through another section in Exodus. Actually, oddly enough, we are getting fairly close to ending Exodus. It feels like we just finished Genesis. That's crazy. Anyway, so in today's episode, we are going to attempt to get through chapters 25 through 31. So we'll see if we can make good on that promise. If you are new here, welcome. Thank you guys for tuning in. How this works is that currently we are going through the scriptures in an order fashion in order to give you kind of a overall macroscopic or big picture perspective of the unfolding story in real time. So that is the major goal that we have started. So because of that, all of these episodes are cumulative, meaning that it would probably be best if you have the time and haven't done so to go back and listen to the episodes preceding this one to get the full context of today's episode. If you don't have time for that, uh, we are going to be giving a brief recap of last week's episode in which we covered the ending of chapter 20 through chapter 24 of Exodus. So with that, Corey, what the heck did we talk about last week? That's a great question. Um, so we looked at what happens after the 10 words, right? And so we just looked at various commandments that God gives his people. The bottom line that each of these commandments had in common, well, Jesus summed it up best by saying, all the law and the prophets is summed up in love God and love your neighbor. And so we see that God gives a bunch of laws that is trying to make his people consider others. Right. And he, he says things like eye for eye, tooth for tooth within his laws, which can be kind of harsh, but it makes the follower of the laws have to think and say, do I want this Uh, what I'm about to do to come back upon me. So I need to treat that person as though I would treat myself or want someone else to treat me. Something really interesting about the laws as we have gone through them and will continue to go through them is that God is not given this excellent, perfect world laws. He's giving laws to very broken people, right? Even though he had said he wanted Israel to be his um, holy nation and kingdom of priests, he's given them a lot of allowance. You know, we we went over laws like, you know, if um, you go to war with people or we'll see, see things like if you rape someone, it's like, wait a minute, what? So we see that God is very merciful in his laws as well. He's working with broken people to try and make the best of their rebellious state, right? So he's he's realizing that they're kind of like everyone else, but yet starting to give laws 
to help them be separate from all the other nations around them. And then we got to chapter 24 and uh, Exodus 24 is basically laying out the covenant that God wants to cut with his people. And, uh, the people say, yeah, whatever you do, God, we will obey. And we've mentioned that we've seen Israel say that before and then almost immediately mess up. So now we're hoping that the people will hold true to that covenant that they're making with God, that they will hold fast to all the terms and conditions that God puts in place. Awesome, Corey. Thank you for the recap. If you guys remember from last week's episode there at the end, I did say that we would spend just a minute or two on this concept of covenant. I did say quite a bit on it last week, but we were running out of time. So a little bit more on the idea of covenant, because at the end of last week, we have the official cutting of the covenant between God and Israel at Sinai. And so up to this point, we have seen how Israel has actually failed consistently. And yet God still cuts this covenant with them, although the language of this particular covenant seems a bit different than had first been presented in Exodus chapter 19, assuming the people followed God's command and came up the mountain. They did not. And therefore, the covenant that they are ending up with is perhaps a bit different than it might have been had they actually gone up the mountain. We'll never know that for sure. But that being said, the idea of a covenant is often misconstrued by Americans, evangelicals. It's thrown around a lot. It's a big biblical word that really doesn't have much of a definition within our English context. And so the best thing in English that we can kind of relate it to is maybe a promise. And so when we use the word covenant in English, most people are kind of talking about a promise, maybe. But it goes beyond that in the Bible. And so the idea of covenant is basically where a greater individual gives to a lesser individual means by which that they can live. They basically stipulate blessings and curses. And so a covenant is something that the, the language that's used is it's cut between two individuals or groups of individuals, and it is bound in blood where the two sides agree to keep their ends of it. If they fail to keep their ends of it, they receive the cursing aspect of the covenant. Basically, whatever is laid out in the covenant as the bad things that are going to happen if you fail to keep the covenant, that's what you get if you fail to keep the covenant. Interestingly as well, a covenant is bound in blood. And so whenever we see these covenants in the scriptures, there's always some sort of blood binding in them. And so, for example, we see in Noah and in Abraham, the sacrifice of animals in association with the cutting of the covenant. Here again, we see the sacrifice of animals in association with the cutting of the covenant. And the blood is actually sprinkled on the people. I did mention last week that the major difference between the covenant here in Exodus and the one that was made with Abraham is when God makes a covenant with Abraham and he cuts the animals in half and basically is making or cutting this covenant, he puts Abraham to sleep. 
and passes between the pieces of animals himself, signifying that he is going to be the one that is going to keep the covenant, that Abraham has nothing really to do with this, that God is going to fulfill this. And it's a promise that God is making with himself. So instead of Abraham making a covenant with God, in a sense, God is making a covenant with himself on behalf of Abraham. The difference now here is that the people have the blood sprinkled on them. And those words that they're going to come to regret, we will do everything that Yahweh says. Yeah, right. But the purpose is to show that ultimately this covenant isn't just between God and God. Now it's between God and Israel. So Israel has a very active part to play in this covenant. If they keep God's commands, like they say they're going to, yeah, right. Then they will receive the blessing side of the covenant. However, if if they fail to keep God's commands, and they will, then they are going to receive the cursing aspect of it. And it's bound in blood. So this is life or death sort of stuff. And that's going to be important for today when we talk about consecration and holiness. And we see that there's some punishments that don't seem to fit the crime in our minds, at least at first glance. So keep that in mind, that idea of covenant. It is a big theme within the scriptures, even up until the new covenant, when we'll get to way in the future, we see Jesus also makes a covenant bound in his own blood. Uh, So it is kind of the way in which the scriptures are segmented, if you will. Uh, They are kind of segmented by their various covenants. And each covenant really builds on the previous covenants that have been made. They don't stand alone. So that's another important factor on that subject. Let's go ahead and get into today's material in chapter 25. Corey, what you got? All right. So from 25... Uh, through 30, 31, and then again, the subject will pick up later on. But through that section, we're going to be focusing on the tabernacle. As we get into the tabernacle, the instruction, starting in chapter 25, we have uh, God talking to Moses and saying, speak to the people of Israel that they may bring something to contribute. And he lays out the things that he would um, love to receive from them, like gold and silver and bronze, all sorts of different types of scarlet yarns, and then really fancy spices, some oil, some wood, different types of stones and jewels. Right now, he's instructing Moses to go out and to collect contributions for the tabernacle to which he's about to show him how to build. And we're going to get into the tabernacle, the furniture that goes inside of it. But before we get into the tabernacle, the word tabernacle, uh, it's not the same word that's used in tent. We've seen tent come up a lot in scripture. Tabernacle is a Hebrew word that simply means uh, to dwell. So back up a little bit. The Bible, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. But there were some Greek speakers and writers who translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek. That translation is called the Septuagint. Um, and still very influential today how the Greek translators translate from Hebrew to Greek. We use that a lot today in our Bibles. And the Greek word that they chose for tabernacle is the same exact word 
that John and his gospel uses to start out his letter where he says, God came in the flesh and dwelt among us. That word for dwell there is the same idea as tabernacle. So John is kind of picking up on tabernacle motifs from Exodus, Leviticus, and talking about how Jesus is a tabernacle that is a place where God comes to dwell. Tabernacle is another one of those fancy words, kind of like Dylan was talking about with covenant. It's a fancy church, Bible, Christianese word. We don't really need to know what it means. We just throw it around. But tabernacle, it just means the place where God dwells. Or really not even just God, it's it's just a dwelling place. And so the, the tabernacle will be the place in which God specifically dwells. Okay. And so we're going to see him talk about different aspects about it. And the first thing to talk about within the tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant. Right. And so within the Ark of the Covenant, they're going to build it out of wood, overlay it with gold, and it's going to hold different things that bear testimony or bear witness to uh, God and the things that he has done. And so here in chapter 25, it says it's going to hold the tablets of the covenant because that was something amazing that God did in giving them the 10 words, right? And then we're going to see that on top of the ark, there's these built hammered works in metal, uh, these cherubim, these angels, right? And so between these two cherubim, is the place where God's presence is going to dwell, right? So really cool imagery of cherubim and God's presence and all this stuff. And we'll see more things go into the Ark of the Covenant as the story continues on. But I want to just talk about a couple more of these things together. Then he goes into the table, the table of showbread. This bread is to be before God at all times. And it's uh, symbolizing to the Israelites a declaration to consecrate to God the first fruits of the labors and the recognition that all such first fruits had been provided by God. We even just read about how God provided bread for the people in the wilderness and people in the next book will be asked to um, give back to God. And so this table of showbread is always before God and it's going to be for the priests. And then also last thing within the uh, tabernacle that's talked about in chapter 25 is this lampstand. And really interesting about this lampstand, it has three branches coming out from each side. And these branches that will be holding candles are supposed to be looking like tree branches. And at the ends of the branches are these like almond blossoms. And so there's... Seven total spaces for candles, as he says, because middle stem will also hold a candle. So this uh, Jewish circles is called the menorah, right? So the seven fold lampstand. But even this lampstand is going and pointing back to nature imagery within the garden. And we're going to see a lot of things like that, especially in just in the next section, even when we talk about the curtains, the curtains are going to have different trees and types of fruit and nature embroidered onto them. 
So it's very Eden reminiscent as we're stepping into this place where God is going to dwell with people again, which makes sense because that was the last place that God dwelt with people. Um, anything else before we move on to more of the items, Dylan? I think you hit on everything big in chapter 25. Uh, just to reiterate, like Corey said, uh, the big thing we're looking back to and forward from is Eden. I think that that's a really important point, not to reiterate Corey too much, but all of this imagery we have seen before. And we touched on that in the podcast already when we were looking at Eden. But keep Eden in the back of your mind as we move forward through the explanation of the tabernacle and how it is to function. So moving on then from chapter 25, talking about the Ark of the Covenant, the table for the showbread, and the golden lampstand. Now in chapters 26, we start touching on some other things like the ways in which the tabernacle is actually to be constructed and how it is to be divided. And so we have things like the bars and the boards and the curtains and the veils and the structure of the tabernacle. And so what's really interesting is God is giving very intricate, detailed instruction as to how this tabernacle is to be constructed. And it's not only to be constructed in a certain way, it's to be laid out in a specific way. It's to function as a single location with multiple rooms or locations within it that kind of have this ultimate separation between the common, the very, very outside of it, or the courts, which we'll talk about in just a second, all the way up to the very, very holy or the most holy place where God is actually going to dwell on top of this Ark of the Covenant that we just talked about. And so God is making a place where people can go from their normative world, their normal human world, into a place that is profoundly holy where they can meet with God, just as they were able to do in the Garden of Eden. And it has very similar structure. We're going to talk about that in a little bit after we get through this section here. Corey, anything else on 26? One last thought. Um, in 26, in talking about the separation, it throws around the word holy a lot. And I think we might have talked a little bit about holy and the Hebrew word for it. Um, but to reiterate, if we have already talked about it, the Hebrew word for holy is kodesh. And so in, in Hebrew, when it's separating the holy place, which is like the main part of the tabernacle, from the most holy place, this is kind of a, a fun fact to know how the Hebrew mind and language works is that when it says the most holy, it's kodesh ha-kodeshim. So it's essentially saying it's holy of holies. Right. And so a lot of times when Hebrew wants to make something significant, it'll repeat it or it will make it plural. And Hebrew words become plural when they add this im on the end. So it was repeated and there's an im put on the end. So this holy place is very holy. It's very set apart from the rest of it. And as we've already been talking about holiness and how every time 
God makes something holy, it sets it apart from something else. So it's, it's kind of cool to see him setting apart something that is holy from something that is more holy. It's like a hotter spot of holiness, almost like a, if you ever go to, I don't know, like where Dylan is in Colorado, there's lots of hot springs that are natural and come out into rivers. And you can go really stinking close to that hot spot and like melt your skin off. Or if you go a little bit down the river, you'll find like a nice place that's still warm, but has more cool water. So it's bearable. Whereas you go, you know, way down the river, you're only going to feel the frigid, cold snow melt water. And so that's the idea here is God is designated, designating some things to be more holy than the other. But in the, in the way in which it does that in Hebrew, it's kind of fun and cool just by repetition and by making it plural. Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely an idea that we should keep in the back of our minds because it's not just employed here. We're going to see that idea come up significantly throughout the Hebrew Bible. So moving on into chapters 27 now, we see, uh, as I already talked about, the court of the tabernacle, and we also have the bronze altar uh, in the tabernacle. And so just to give you a little bit more of a picture here, the tabernacle is divided up into three major sections now that we've seen. So we have the outer court. So there is basically outside of the tabernacle. And then the first thing you do when you come into the tabernacle is you get into the outer court. And this is where the bronze altar is going to be located. And this is basically an altar made of wood overlaid in bronze. And it's going to be an altar on which sacrifices are made. And now this area, this courts, is a place where commoners can come and people can come in and have sacrifices made on their behalf. And then as you move into this tabernacle, you, you are slowly entering more and more holy of a location. So the next location you get into then is the holy place where you actually enter the tent itself. And in the holy place, uh, we have things like the showbread, for instance, and this almond-budded lampstand. And so this is a place where the priest can come into and make specific sacrifices and tend to the lamps and things like this. And then moving further into kind of the inner sanctum is the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant is located, where the high priest can enter once a year. We haven't talked about that yet. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But basically, it's the place where God dwells. It is the single most holy place. So this tripartite sort of division for the tabernacle then is overlaid with that in Genesis talking about Eden. If you remember from Genesis 2 and Genesis chapter 3, when we were talking about this whole concept, Eden, when it's first introduced, isn't the Garden of Eden, as we often say in our vernacular, but instead the Garden in Eden. And that's very important because you have Eden as the larger location, a garden that is in Eden itself, at the center of this garden is the tree of life, as well as the tree of knowing good and bad. And we talked about how the tree of life is basically God's presence manifests in the center of this garden. And so we have the same picture being carried out here. 
Unlike Eden, however, this particular tabernacle is a place where fallen humans are coming to meet an unfallen God, which means that there's some things here that we didn't actually need in Genesis. For example, the bronze altar. We're going to see a golden altar built as well. Any of these things and uh, furniture instruments for sacrifice are specifically placed there so that fallen humanity can actually be able to approach this holy God. It's to make them consecrated, to basically set them apart from the worldliness that they seem to embody as humans so that they can come before God. And that's really kind of the movement that you take when you go through the tabernacle. You go outer courts, holy place, and then finally inner sanctum, the holy of holies. So you move from a place of less holy to most holy. Corey, anything else? No, yeah, it's a great catch of just showing how the author, well, really God, by giving the tabernacle is trying to make us think of the garden in Eden, right? And so we go from this uh, similarity with now bringing out the courtyard. We already talked about the holy place and then the holy of holy place. And we go from there to talking about the priest's garments. It's really important how the priests dress, even to be prepared before they get dressed, which will be the next chapter. But they're laying out in chapter 28 how they're going to dress. It's going to wear a breast piece and an ephod and a robe and a coat of check work, a turban, a sash, and they shall make holy garments. All right, so th- this is the makeup of the holy garments of Aaron and his sons and the priests to come after them. And we see that as we're talking about the garments in which the priests from Aaron's line are going to wear, we see something really heavy about this whole thing. So on the chest piece that the priests wear, they'll have 12 stones, one for each tribe of Israel and the name of Israel be engraved above the stone. But in, uh, this is chapter 28, verse 12. It says something interesting. It's a line that's repeated a few times throughout the chapter, but it says, Aaron shall bear their names before Yahweh on his two shoulders for remembrance. He is going to be bearing the names of the people further down in the chapter in verse 29 of still chapter 28 says, so Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breast piece of judgment on his heart. When he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before Yahweh and in the breast piece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, which are these special types of stones. And they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before Yahweh. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel and his heart before Yahweh regularly. So we've talked a little bit about priests so far, but in this uh, description of what the priests wear, we also get a good idea of what the purpose of a priest is. A priest stands in the place of the people before God. So Aaron, as the first high priest, he is going to be representing the people before God. And as the high priest, he's the only one, we'll find out later, who will be able to go into the most holy place to perform specific 
duties there. And so there will be a, a further distinction that will be made of holiness. There will be a high priest amongst other priests. This priest bears the name of the people. And we talked about um, last week, the a uh, few weeks ago, uh, about the idea of bearing the name of Yahweh, right? And in uh, the 10 words of Exodus chapter 20, it says, do not bear Yahweh's name in vain. We talked about all that it means to live like God if you're going to claim to be his people and that to misrepresent God by acting differently than what we proclaim to be living for is a really big deal in God's eyes. And so now, maybe even scarier, Aaron's going to be bearing the names of sinful people before a holy God, right? And he's going to be wearing this breast piece. Now it's called the breast piece of judgment. Aaron needs to do the necessary steps of going through all of these steps of consecration. And again, it's going to be in the, the next chapter where the priests are consecrated and how to do that. But he needs to do this all the right way because what we're going to come to find out very soon is that it is sinful to step into God's presence without going through his steps. And sin in the presence of pure holiness is essentially disintegrated, right? So Aaron has this really heavy and scary job of representing sinful people before a holy God. He's going to be bearing their names upon his breastpiece, upon his chest with these stones, Urim and Thummim. And then along with that, he's going to be uh, wearing God's nameplate upon his head. And the nameplate, which is in gold, is going to read out holy to Yahweh. Right, so he's also literally bearing Yahweh's name on his head while bearing the sins of the people with his breastpiece and by doing the necessary steps of consecration, which involves sacrifices. But yeah, he's showing that he is set apart to do this work. And that nameplate on the head says it all. He has been made holy for Yahweh. And that, that word for consecrate, again, it's the, the same word in Hebrew, slight variation, Kodesh, right? And so the priests are going to be made holy, that is to be consecrated so that they can be holy for Yahweh. Anything else on this, Dylan? Yeah, I would like to point out that it seems a bit silly to our modern sensibilities, perhaps, that these guys are wearing special clothing to approach God. I mean, maybe in some traditions and some odd, you know, really hyper liturgical high churchly traditions in the Christian tradition, there might be some people that wear special clothes and stuff like that. But to most American evangelicals or any other country that you may be in, uh, it, it probably sounds odd. You know, why is God being so mean? You know, like, isn't it not about a religion? Isn't it a relationship? Like, what's all this hullabaloo about these clothing and, and the ark and the tabernacle? Well, Corey really did a good job of already pointing 
to this, but I really wanted to emphasize it. And that is the fact that ultimately Israel is coming face to face with a holy God. We as Christians come face to face with a holy God. And God is to be approached on his own terms. And instead of looking down our noses at these guys that are hyper-religious, perhaps, we should instead be examining ourselves and going, how flippantly do we take approaching a holy God? In this section, we have God laying out to explicit detail how he is to be approached to the clothing that his priests that stand before him representing the people are to wear. He talks about the threading that their clothes are supposed to be threaded with. This isn't a God that doesn't care about how he is approached. And so instead of looking down our noses at people like this, I think that we instead should be examining ourselves going in what ways have we actually stepped beyond the bounds of the scriptures in approaching this God in whatever way we see fit. You know, we like to whatever rock music say, for example. So God probably accepts that, right? Or we like this or we like that. So let's throw it in the church service. God is a God that is holy and we're not. And so one thing that I really wanted to point out specifically from this section, Corey did a good job of talking about the clothing itself, the uh, ephod, the breast piece, as well as the head piece where the priest bears the name of the people and Yahweh. One other thing that I wanted to point out is all the way there at the end in 41, 42 and 43 And it says in 42, you shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. And again, with our modern sensibilities, we might look at a passage like that and go, whoa, whoa, whoa. This God is going to kill this dude if he doesn't wear the proper underpants. To which we have completely missed the point. Ultimately, any part of a human is sinful. We saw when Moses approached God at the burning bush on Horeb, Mount Sinai, that God commanded him to remove his sandals because his sandals, his feet, are a sign of his creatureliness. And so basically to uncover his creatureliness from before God is a recognition and acknowledgement of his unworthiness to approach God. And even still here, any part of any of us that comes before God that is human is by definition, by nature, corrupt before this holy God. And so the things that God tells him to do to consecrate himself includes covering his flesh so that he doesn't come before God showcasing his creatureliness, but instead comes before God consecrated. And so the punishment of dying by not following one of God's commands is very real and natural. If you look at it from that perspective, one can only but die if they come before the presence of a holy God without being completely consecrated. And it is only through doing that, which God has commanded that they can and we can be consecrated such that we can come before this holy God. And so I think that that's a really important 
aspect of this passage and something that we should probably examine within our own lives when we come before God ourselves. Even though we do have the blood of Christ covering us, God still has prescribed a specific way that we have to come before him. So we should probably bear that in mind. Moving then on into the next chapter, into chapter 29, we're going to see a bit more of that. Exactly how can these priests then be consecrated in order to carry out their duties as the high priests and actually stand between God and the people? Corey, you want to answer that question? I would love to. Great word on that. Yeah, it's so easy to to in this day, because God has shown us so much grace to underestimate God's holiness and misunderstand it. But yeah, so going into chapter nine, answering this question, like, yeah, what does it mean to be consecrated? How do these sinful people, even sinful priests, go and approach God? We already talked about the special clothing they're going to wear. They uh, are getting ready to come and do their duty as priests. Starting out right in 29 verse 1, it says, This is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat, the robe, the ephod, and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven bands of the ephod. You shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and Put coats on them, and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them, and the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. You know, it goes on to say, Then you will kill the bull before Yahweh at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and you shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar. Right? And then you're going to Go and do the same thing with the ram. You go and you take the blood, you splatter it on, you go and take out all the entrails and the fat that covers those things. You're going to burn these things with fire and then ultimately put the animals themselves on it. Right. And so we see that this is a pretty gnarly process of being made holy. And again, when you see that word, in English, consecrated, it's the same Hebrew word as holy, but just a very slight variation to it. But it's a, it's a very brutal and messy process. And we've learned this idea before in the garden when God told Adam and Eve, if you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. Well, God's making a way to atone for sin, that is to cover that sin so that you can come and be with him, right? And so the priests are going to end up being the ones who make the sacrifices for the rest of the people as well. So for the rest of the congregation of Israel, 
They will bring their sacrifices to the priests and the priests will do these duties for them. But before the priests can even represent the people before God, they have their own sins to be covered. So they need to wash themselves. They need to make these sacrifices and they need to be anointed by oil. So this is the first mention in the Bible of Messiah. Really, the, the Hebrew pronunciation of this word is Meshiach. Got to get that you know hard German guttural sound in the back of your throat. But we have priests as one of the offices in Scripture that must be anointed. Right? And so when we see Jesus being the Messiah, that literally just means anointed one. So priests are one of the anointed ones. And then we'll see kings get anointed and um, few prophets get anointed, namely Elijah anoints Elisha. So that's why Jesus is called the anointed one, because he's all of those things. But here's the first mention of any of these offices. And this priest must be anointed for this work. In all of this, they're going to be making offerings and burnt offerings to make a pleasing aroma to God. And there's just a lot in here because people are sinful, even the priests. And so a sinful priest needs to be consecrated before the priest can represent the rest of the sinful people to consecrate or make them holy. Right? So really cool imagery, but really gnarly. And the idea is here, the result of sin is death. But thank God that he's providing another way. And in this case, it's animals. And I've talked to some people who say like, wow, like God doesn't really care that much about animals, right? Because look, he gives them for sacrifice. That's not at all the case. God loves his animals. But remember, the high point of creation were humans who were made in his image. So with a heavy heart, God starts giving animals and their life and their blood up for the atonement of humans, that their sins would be covered to enter into God's presence because God wants to spend time with his covenant people. He's even willing to give up his precious animals that he loves and that he created. But this just more so speaks to his love and desire to be with people than it does to say anything about like hatred of animals. It's, it's not hatred of animals. It's just extreme love and desire to be with his people. All right, there, there's tons of more stuff in there. Dylan, is there anything else that you want to bring out of this section? That was pretty brief. There is a lot in that section. And like we already said, the level of detail only speaks to the specificity with which God has commanded that humans approach him. And he is making a way for humans to come before him in spite of humans' choices time and time again. So we already laid out that at the very beginning of the Bible, the ultimate crux or problem or dilemma with the story is that humans are idiots. Humans choose their own wisdom over and against God's wisdom. 
And so what does God do in return? Consistently try and make humans come back and see his wisdom is good and wise and so that they can approach him and consistently try and offer ways that humans can come back before him. And humans consistently time and time again go, yeah, great, but our wisdom is better. So we're going to do that instead. And so God gives us the Torah, the instruction, showcasing how his wisdom is above all and telling the people here that if they are to live under his instruction and keep those instructions, that all they have to do in order to come before him is to keep those instructions and to consecrate themselves, to make themselves holy and set apart so that they can approach God. And to do that, they need to offer these sacrifices. And like Corey already said, high priests are not exempt from having to do this. One other thing I wanted to point out is like we already talked about in Exodus 19, when the people were supposed to come up, the people were supposed to be a kingdom of priests. Unfortunately, because they didn't go up the mountain and they disobeyed God, once again, choosing their own wisdom and fear over and against choosing God's wisdom. Now, instead of being a kingdom of priests, they are a kingdom with priests. And so Moses was the one acting and currently acting as intermediary between them. The priesthood then is going to take on that responsibility of representing the people before God and atoning, making sacrificial atonement for their sins so that the people aren't obliterated by God, so that the people can live with God as their God, as God's people, without God absolutely and utterly forsaking them due to their sinfulness, because God can't do anything other than that if sin isn't atoned for. So that's all I want to point out in that chapter in 29. It is really important that they do approach God in the way that he has uh, set out so that they aren't annihilated and obliterated. We we think that that's harsh, but it's the reality of their metaphysical position before God. And so now in chapter 30, we're going to see some things that are similar along the lines of this that seem harsh to our maybe modern sensibilities, uh, but ultimately keep in line with this idea that God is holy and people are not. And so we have the altar of incense that is created and it's made of wood overlaid in gold. And this is to be put before the most holy place. So it's right before you enter the most holy place. It's there. And it is the place where specific incense is sacrificed. And it is also the place where atonement is made on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering for the people by the high priest. We see the census tax, which is, It was particularly interesting to me when I was reading through this section uh, in the respect that when the people are counted, they're basically to pay because of their sins. And God is saying that out of your guilt, you owe money when you're counted. Uh, So this money is the atonement money of the people of Israel in verse 16. uh, And you shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before Yahweh. So as to make atonement for your lives. So it's basically to allow for the continuation of this institution of the tabernacle that God now has ordained for these people of Israel. 
Uh, and then we get the bronze basin as well as the anointing oil and incense. God goes so far as to say there is a specific oil and incense that you are to craft that you shall use for the task of anointing. And this oil even is set apart for my purposes. Don't replicate it or you should be put to death. So again, I don't know if I can emphasize it enough. These rules and regulations, you shouldn't think of them as just, oh, religiosity, but instead an unholy people coming before a holy God is no simple task. Corey, anything else on that? No, that's great. Although uh, you keep talking about this looks very religious. Uh, John Salehammer gives a cool definition of religion and relationship and you know some ideas that you've thrown around already, but it's in his uh, Introducing Old Testament Theology. And he says, religion is something that's man-made, right? But revelation is what comes from God. So this looks religious to religious groups that we can compare it to, um, but they're just taking the revelation from God and hopefully they will do it right. Right. We're, we're just getting the instructions. So yet we'll see them construct it at uh, the end of Exodus. We're not going to get there today, but yeah. So we shouldn't try and be, religious, that is, make things on top of what God said, as we see people do later on in the story. But with God's revelation, use it to enter into relationship with them, right? Because that's what this is all about. God's given them a revelation saying, build these things. This is my statute to you for the purpose of coming in before me and entering into relationship with me. Really cool stuff. Again, so gnarly compared to the amazing covenant that Jesus had made with us. But yeah, this is just what needed to be done. From there, we go into the craftsmen that are introduced. We have Bezalel, who is from the spirit of Judah. He's the grandson of Hur. I don't know if you guys remember Hur, that guy who helped hold up Moses' arms during the battle. And back in Exodus chapter 17. So we got Bezalel and Oholia from the tribe of Dan. And God gave them wisdom. He filled them with his spirit to be wise in this way. Right. So this is one of the first instances where we see the Hebrew word for wisdom being used. And it's about a certain skill that's done for God. Right. And it's just being wise and dedicated in that craft. So we see God choose these two workers and they are to do the work because all the instructions are laid out. So now all we need now is a couple of guys to build it, sew it, whatever. And so these are the guys who are chosen. Um, but really interesting, like it's not just like, hey, let's get some construction workers, let's pay them off and whatever. It's like these guys are filled with the spirit for this task. Again, this is no small task as God has gone through meticulous detail, as we have pointed out time and time again, these guys will need to be filled with God's spirit to be able to do this task unto God's glory in a manner worthy of his holiness. Right? And so 
at the end of this section, this is the last chapter, by the way, we're only going to go to chapter 31 today, is the Sabbath, right? And again, we, we see um, Sabbath being talked about. It's already been brought up in the 10 words. It's been brought up in those uh, little groups of laws we read after the 10 words in our episode last week. And here again, we have the Sabbath, which is not too much new information, but the Sabbath is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you know that I am Yahweh and that I, Yahweh, sanctify you. And you got to keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. So now we have this uh, extra degree of why to follow Sabbath. And it, it will go on to say, well, just as God created things in the sixth day and the seventh thing, seventh day, he rested. So you should do the same. But now this is for you to be holy. Right? This is part of that holy identity as God's people. And so if any of you break the Sabbath, they will be killed because one, they won't be holy if they're breaking these commandments. And Sabbath just demonstrates this great trust in God that he will provide for them. And every time we think about the Sabbath, we should have the idea, and we brought this up a while ago now, but I want to re reiterate it because it's been a while. Every time we talk about Sabbath, I think about Sabbath, it's pointing to a future rest. The ultimate rest in which God's Messiah will bring, that God will bring us back into rest with Him, right? And so, this Sabbath day is a reminder of all that God has done and all that God will do, as is the case with a lot of the things that God does. But really quick, as we look at all of these things in which God lays out for his tabernacle, we see it relate really closely back to creation and the creation narrative. For example, things were overlaid with pure gold here. We had the gold within the land being talked about back in Genesis 2.12. There's these precious jewels within the ephah and the breastplate, the breastplate of the priests. We have different jewels. Some of the same jewels are laid out in Genesis coming up again now here for one of the first times. We have cherubim above the Ark of the Covenant. We have the cherubim who guards the tree after Adam and Eve have fallen away. There's the reminder to obey the Sabbath that we just went over. Um, after God had created everything, he looked at all and said it, it was really good. At the end of the work of the tabernacle in chapter 39, we'll see Moses do the same thing and say, oh, it is finished. And there's going to be a fall after this words of God, just as there was a fall after the creating words of God. And we're going to get into that next week. But so while the things within the tabernacle point us back to Eden, even the structure of the writing of the tabernacle instructions points us back to the Eden narrative. So it's kind of like inception of Eden going on here. 
that's uh, it for me, Dylan. Why don't you take us home? Yeah, I like that. The inception of Eden. Thanks, Corey. And thank you guys for tuning in to the podcast. We're going to go ahead and wrap up there. We are at our time limit. So thanks for tuning into the show one more week. If you do enjoy the show, please go ahead and leave a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts. Uh, that does help out the visibility of the show. Tell your friends about it. Share it on Facebook. We do have a Facebook page at Scripture Chronicles. We also have a website, The Bible is a Story. Dot com On our website, you can access the blog and other resources. We're uh, going to be coming out with a lot more on there. So stay tuned for all of that. Also, if you guys do enjoy the show and would like to support it, you can do that by going to the Bible is a story.com and clicking on donate. That'll take you to the Patreon page, which is a crowdfunding platform for episodic content such as this. So you can go ahead and donate if you feel so led. Also, please don't forget to pray for the show. We covet your prayers. Last thing, if you want to chat, scripturechronicles at gmail.com is the email address. I hope you have a wonderful rest of whatever the stinking heck time of day it is when you're listening to this. And as per usual... Shalom, Shalom. Adios. Adios.